0: He had no higher education beyond his parish schooling in the tiny town of Edrom in the Scottish Borders. His knowledge of natural history was not obtained at the universities of Oxford or Edinburgh, but from folk practices and professional apprenticeship. For all that, fortune was ambitious, and for many 19th century Scots, as well as English second sons of some talent and no secure, seeking one's chances abroad was the only way to advance in the rigid Victorian social hierarchy. There were untold possibilities to make a decent living by exploring the untapped resources of the empire. That quote is from the book For All the Tea in China, How England Stole the World's Favorite Drink and Changed History by Sarah Rose. This is a wonderful little book. It's it's a delightful book um, about the 1845, 1850, all the way through the 1900s period of British explorers moving through China, British explorers moving around the world, why this happened and and what I appreciated so much about this book was that it's a book about a company or a person, but it's sort of like one tier below below um, what we study in history class this is like a supporting cast member we all watch movies or television shows or listen to music where there's the main person there's the lead singer there's the star and around them are all these good supporting characters people who do the little things well or people who fill out another role and and that's what it really felt like robert fortune was this book about his explorations in China, it seems really important. It it covers the East India Trading Company. The book talks about why tea became so popular in Britain, some of the effects that tea had all throughout the world as it was exported from China, and and why it was so important to some people to export it from China. So our hero of the book is is, uh, Mr. Robert Fortune. And Fortune, as we open this podcast with he he had a lot of experience but he didn't have any prestige and he didn't have any money and so he was kind of stuck there was there wasn't a whole lot of options available to him unless he went and did something unless he tried and so he he ends up going to China and he ends up exploring and um, he comes back and he writes a book about his time um, traveling the rivers of China he, he had to disguise himself during one of his early trips, and, and what this looked like was, is that he had to shave the front of his forehead, the, the front part of his head, and then he had to buy basically a long uh, set of hair from a peasant, and he had that sewn into his own scalp. And so he had to go undercover to explore China, because China wasn't open at the time. The, the ports of China were open after the first opium war between uh, England and China. But but to go inland was dangerous. There were people there who were unfriendly and, and the rulers were also unfriendly. So so fortune goes under in, uh, in in disguise and he discovers these things and he comes back and he writes a book about it and, and he gets his first taste of success. So he gets um he gets the support of the East India Trading Company. And they're like, listen, if you go back and if you bring back the tea plants that we need, because we want to grow them in India. So we don't have to go through China. We want to grow them in our own colony. If you go there and you can bring back the tea plants and the seeds and the leaves, we'll, we'll compensate you for it. And whatever else you want to bring back is yours to keep. So, so Fortune's really got this great situation in front of him where... He can go and explore, and he can gain prestige among all these people that he hangs around with, all these other botanists and gardeners. And he can gain some financial success as well. And the reason that the East India Company wanted tea so badly is because the margins on tea were great. It was easy to transport. It didn't spoil particularly. Even though the, the English and the tea producers didn't fully understand how their tea was being made, by some of their suppliers, it was still something that was really valuable for the East India Company. So Fortune is given this opportunity. He decides to take it, but, but he, needs, he needs help. And this is what Rose writes about, one of the help forms that Fortune got. Quote, he could not advanced even as far as he had without her help. The curatorship of the physic garden brought him a salary, a home and a vegetable garden, and Jane tended to the latter too. While he was attending to his botanical duties and research, she sowed vegetable seeds in March, moved plants in and out of the sun throughout the spring, and transplanted seedlings after the final frosts in May. She grew the food for her family. She mended old clothes and sold new ones for a man who was all too often found himself in a thicket of thorns, snagging trousers, socks, and coats. Jane also served as the Fortune's family secretary and accountant. While Fortune was in China collecting plants, the salary was directed to Jane in London, She paid his debts and put money by, managed expedition accounts, and settled his bills. She was also the go-between between between Fortune's shipments of trinkets that were sent home to auctioneers. It is entirely likely that she would have kept abreast of the newest developments in botany, too, and forwarded relevant papers and magazines to Fortune's post address abroad. Away for years at a time, he could not afford afford to be uninformed of the scientific developments." This is important, I think, because all of these people that books are written about, they have supporting actors too. So Fortune plays this role that supports a larger thing, but if if we get down to it and we look at just Fortune's story, he's the main actor, he's the lead actor in this book, but he has supporting actors too, and this happens for every success. These supporting parts, we have to figure out how important they are. So Fortune has his wife looking after things at home. She's she's covering the bases and, and she's helping out with with his work even though she's not directly compensated financially or with the rewards of history. And but he needs some other things and luckily he's got the ward box. A few centuries before the ward box is a terrarium and Dr. Nathaniel Bagshaw, Ward of London, found out, uh, accidentally actually, that if you put seeds in a sealed glass container, those seeds can stay alive, and and it's a mini ecosystem where put in some soil, put in some water, put in your seeds... have a window or a glass portion where sunlight can come in and the water will be warmed by the sun and it will evaporate and it will condense on the glass panes and then at night it will cool and it will go back into the soil and, and things can be kept alive for years and Ward totally accidentally discovered this when there were seeds in a um, hawk moth chrysalis that he had been looking at and he, and he saw those seeds and he's like, that's interesting and so uh, Ward disregarded his original study and he followed this path to seeds and and with this sort of curiosity he found out that oh this is this glass box and seeds this is something that's really valuable so we've got fortune his wife is taking care of things at home he's got the experience from going to china before he's got some supplies but the east india company is really hesitant about handing out a lot of stuff to him. Remember, fortune wasn't a man of means, so typically the East India Company would hire somebody and they would bring all of their own supplies because they had those things, and and fortune, doesn't have those things so he's like you got to at least give me a gun and they said no we're not going to give you a gun he's like I need a gun it's dangerous there and they said we're not giving you a gun and then eventually someone intervenes on his behalf and they say and he says fortune needs a gun and so fortune ends up getting a gun and some of the other supplies that he needs and so he's off on a he's off on a boat to to china fortune is able to make dock in one of the ports that is at least neutral toward English sailors and he disguises himself as we talked about and then he sets up river and he he hires a couple of Chinese men to support him up river they know that he's English but he's paying them so he hopes they keep his secret he's disguised and it's really a fascinating part of the book where he's traveling up river he's seeing things that no one from England has ever seen before things that no westerner has ever seen before and even some of the rural people of China will see him, and, and they can tell that he doesn't look like them, and he speaks as little as possible, but when he speaks, he doesn't, he doesn't speak like them, and so they know he's different, but his guides that he's hired will say, oh, oh he's from the far province, or he's from this place beyond the mountains, and, and for the most part, Fortune's uh, story passes. He doesn't get in any big trouble. The only trouble that he really gets into is from some of the guides that he hires who want to enrich themselves off of Fortune's travels. Because while Fortune maybe has a, a very small vocabulary, the guides have to do the bulk of the communicating. And so what they will do is in translation, they will ask for a little extra than what for, uh, Fortune asked for. So he moves upriver. He's finding these different things. And he realizes that there's a reason the tea comes to England so green. And it's because these Chinese tea farmers had realized that the English buyers like to see a nice green tea leaf. They liked that coloring, and so the the leaf, uh, through the process of making tea, doesn't retain its green tea coloring. It's dried, and it's cooked, and it's left out in the sun, and there's a host of things that happen to these leaves, and they don't end up green. But what these, what these tea makers would do is they would take some blue dye and some yellow dye, some of which was actually poisonous. <laughs> to humans, and then they would mix it up to make these colors that, that, the, that the buyers wanted. And that was such an interesting thing that here we have this instance, this situation almost 300 years ago where, where food suppliers are still making things to, to look nice rather than to maybe taste the best or uh, be as healthy as possible for you. And tea was a big thing in China. Uh, Rose writes in the book, quote, In the hierarchy of Chinese life, tea was ranked as one of the seven necessities, along with firewood, rice, oil, salt, soy sauce, and vinegar, end quote. Farmer goes and he visits different tea plantations, and he's looking around and he's collecting other things. And he sends his first batch of seeds back, and, and they don't really make it. Some boxes, some terrariums are jostled, some are broken, some aren't treated right, some are, some are a mess. It, all in all, the, the entire system was a mess. In the book, Rose says that basically what happened was bureaucracy messed everything up because nobody was fully responsible for fortune seeds. The people who shipped them on the boat pass them off to the person at the port. The person at the port passed it off to the East India Company. And so we have this whole situation where nobody is taking ownership of the situation. So fortune's first batches of seeds that he sends after a long trip through China is a mess. But he continues because he doesn't know this. He packs up the first box, ships them out, and he doesn't know what happens. And then and then later on, he discovers um, some black tea that is most promising. This is the stuff that the people in England want most of all. This is the stuff that looks like it's going to grow, that's going to sell, and that's going to transport. And, and the way he figures this out for transporting the tea is, is pretty clever because he had thought that just sending seeds in a terrarium wasn't going to work. He had to sh- give cuttings and plants, and there was a whole host of things he tried. But once he figured out that these black these black tea seeds were what he really wanted to ship, this is what he did. Quote, Among the specimens he was sending to India were a number of mulberry plants that had been gathered in the district where China's best silks were spun. Fortune had traveled through the silk district on the Yangtze as he made his way in and out of tea country and believed that India, with its thriving cotton industry, might well benefit from experiments in silk production. He planted the mulberry bush in the usual way as he did other shrubs of economic and scientific note, with enough space, soil, and light to be comfortably sustained on the long journey out. He watered the transplant, let the mulberry bush in the sun, and a few days later, after the soil had absorbed the water and the plant had adjusted to its confined new home, he scattered handfuls of black tea seeds, each the size of a marble, over the surface of the soil. He then added another layer of soil, about half an inch deep over the tea seeds. Fortune had his box maker's fashion crossbars for this case, so that the earth would stay in place no matter what turbulence a sea swell or ox cart travel might bring. This method will be applied to all short-lived seeds, he observed, as well as those of the tea plant. It is important that it should be generally known. Fortune's first mulberry box, planted with seeds from the Da Hong Po, was opened in Calcutta and hailed as a complete success. Not only did the seeds survive, but they also had fully germinated on the voyage, out, and arrived in healthy conditions. End quote. So, for, so Fortune experiments with this other plant, this other thing that he's been promised by the East India Company that he can send back and he can have for his garden in England. He experiments and he finds out that this is the way to do it. This is the way that the things are really going to, um, things are really going to grow and transplant safely. Fortune's story is really interesting and, and the book on the whole has a lot of interesting tidbits. This idea of the East India Company wrapping bullets in pig fat so that the bullets could slide down the barrel of the gun was part of the reason another huge event of history transpired. And the tea going back to England was also part of history, where if people had tea to drink, they would add milk and they would add sugar. And this combination of tea, milk, and sugar had uh, caffeine, it had... um, instant carbohydrates and the sugar. But it also got people drinking tea and getting calories they needed rather than drinking beer and getting calories they needed. So we have this situation where uh, we're boiling water and so we're killing waterborne diseases. We're getting calories that people may need. We're, we're having less drunkenness in in the city and the workers. And so the tea just plays this plays this wonderful role. Maybe not for the Chinese because all throughout the book there is this overtone of if the people in China who were in charge of things, if there was like a government body, a a, a tea trading organization in China that knew this was happening, they would have put the kibosh on it. This wouldn't have happened. This was this was one of China's greatest advantages in the world they they traded this tea for the opium production that would that, that came from india and and so if china knew that this secret was getting out they wouldn't have liked it but but for the rest of the world it really creates this amazing situation the east india company is successful on this we have advances in transportation because of tea people realize that you know you could just fill up a boat with tea and bring it back and that would be a profitable run you didn't have to have other silks and other things that, that took a lot of space in cargo holds of ships. So this book, For All the Tea in China by Sarah Rose, was a wonderful book. It was a great tour through parts of China and parts of time that I had never never been to before. A second book that I want to touch on today is called Modern Monopolies, What It Takes to Dominate in the 21st Century Economy by Alex Mosad and Nicholas L. Johnson. What was so interesting about this book was the idea of platforms as a business model, and I started this book because Patrick O'Shaughnessy had an interview with uh, Alex, and this book had been on my to-read shelf, so I figured the combination of these things was a good enough reason to get into it, and it basically comes down to this. Business has always looked at what's the best way to do X for Y and get paid. What is the best way to sell something by a supplier to a consumer for money? And and for a long time, we had Coase's uh, idea of the firm, where we have this centralized collective who is going to do the task, who is going to make the thing and supply the thing and build the thing. Um, and it wasn't gonna be perfectly efficient, but, but if we just get enough people together in a building, we, we can do it. And, and I remember from my days when I worked in an office building that there was a lot of dead time. There was time where you would, you would play stupid internet games or you would chat or you would shoot the breeze or do the water cooler talk. And so we have the firm, we have the group of people that's not perfectly efficient but but it's okay it's not bad and then on the other side we have all of our consumers and and the point alex is making in this book is that once you create platforms you're creating a decentralized system of suppliers and a decentralized system of compute of consumers mobile technology has been the the final straw in this equation once once you can do things from your phone once you can share things from your phone once you can collect things from your phone once you can be a supplier from your phone and once you can be a consumer from your phone then it opens up all of these other areas where we can organize around and and we can organize around the platforms of of what uh, alex is writing and as i was reading this book i realized that this is this is happening in my own life and and i'm not fully aware of it for example i wrote down just just for one day um I used to consume the centralized supply of NPR and regional sports talk radio, but that's been switched to podcasts when I take uh, my dogs out in the morning. The centralized nutrition advice I may have gotten from a television show or uh, family lore has been switched to what I learned uh, reading blogs. The centralized mapping services like uh, Rand McNally and MapQuest have given way to Waze, which is collective mapping uh, when I carpool the kids to summer camp. Centralized book advice, like reviews from the New York Times, has expanded to the decentralized advice from Twitter. And centralized travel plans from a travel agent have given way to VRBO and TripAdvisor searches. So we have this really interesting situation where if I go somewhere, if I want to... Um, write a review on TripAdvisor, I can do that, and I'll write a review about such-and-such such park has really great trails, although the, you know, the moderate one is um, maybe a little harder than, than the website uh, shows. And So I'm a supplier of that content, but then I'm also a consumer as I search for something uh, somewhere else on TripAdvisor. And these are just my personal examples that aren't central to the book. Alex writes about Uber, Facebook, eBay, GitHub, and Airbnb. So these systems, they seem obvious now, but they haven't always been so. For example, there's a large upfront cost when you create a platform, and it's only thankful, and only thanks to the mobile technology that we get to uh, write reviews on the spot and update traffic or stream audio. So what if you want to make one of these? What if you really want to look at the pieces that come from a platform? Well, you're going to need uh, about six things. There were six really big ideas that I uh, that I took from the book. One is you need a liquid market. X and Y need something that they want to trade. And you have to realize that the inventory of X uh, will really vary. So if, for example, if we go to the TripAdvisor um, situation, where if people aren't writing reviews for TripAdvisor, then um, there aren't going to be reviews to read. So we have this, this imbalance, especially in the beginning of what is offered. And, and Alex shows in the book how different founders of these technology companies that uh, we look at, how they would be their own suppliers, and they would be their own demanders, and, and they tried to make this market liquid where there was something people want. This uh, comes back to Clayton Christensen's idea of, well, what does the platform solve for? What job am I hiring for? another way to put it, and I think this was from GitHub, is is how do you make this thing less of a pain in the ass? How do you make booking travel less a pain in the ass? How do you make getting a ride less a pain in the ass? So if you have a market of something people want and enough suppliers and enough consumers, that's the first part. The second part is flexibility. Initial growth will be in size, not dollars. You can't be committed to making money if you're creating a platform business at first. In the book, it talks about how eBay entered China and there were expectations for what eBay would earn, how much money they would bring in from each Chinese consumer. And and their earnings were low because of strategic mistakes that eBay made when it entered China. And so you have to be flexible. And another way to be flexible when creating a platform is you have to give the users what they want. You have to let the people do what they want to do to to a point and so uh, an example of that would be Twitter users started using the at symbol and the hashtag symbol before they were things that you could click on, on Twitter and so the users were like hey this is what we want to do with this and so Twitter built that into the platform the third thing that really helps is if you let X and Y your consumers and your producers uh, set roots in your platform one way to often do this is ratings another way to do this is subscribers when you think about youtube channels people don't leave youtube because there's not a lot of other options there's some options but there's not a lot and and if you are established on youtube if you're a provider someone like casey neistat whose videos i'll often watch then having you know four million subscribers or whatever you can't port that somewhere else you can't take that somewhere else You compare this to uh, getting an Uber or a Lyft ride, and uh, I've used those services, and oftentimes the drivers will have both stickers on their car, or they'll have multiple phones for each service, and so those services are much less sticky than the YouTube services are. The fourth thing that you'll want to do is, um, early on, you'll do things that don't scale. and platform builders need to to be aware of this. This is what we talk about when we talk about creating a liquid market. Maybe you need to be the supplier or the consumer. At the early stage, the goal is to push the snowball until it gets to a critical mass, and then you can push it over the hill. Scott Galloway calls this idea Benjamin Button Companies, where the Uh, platforms will age in reverse so eventually the platform will grow on its own and the consumers will be the producers and the producers will be the consumers and you'll get this beautiful virtuous cycle and that's a great idealized state but early on that's not how it will be the fifth thing that you'll need to do on your platform is you'll need to set up some guidelines it's it would be nice to think that if you set up a platform, people will behave themselves, but, but they won't. And, and the biggest problem you're going to have, especially if there's images involved, is you're going to have the naked man on the internet problem. And, and Alex writes about a couple examples of this in the book. But people are going to you misuse things a lot of times. And so if you can set up soft boundaries for things that you're okay with, and if you can set up hard boundaries for things you're not okay with, then then that's going to help your platform grow. Facebook, for example, had really hard boundaries early on. You could only sign up if you had an invitation code, or you could only sign up with a .edu address, or you could only sign up if you did this. So Facebook had very hard boundaries, and we look at a company like Twitter, Twitter has much softer boundaries for what's allowed on that service. And the sixth thing you need to think about is that the early direction you choose for a platform influences your later direction. It's hard to go back. Once an idea has spoiled in people's minds, or once an idea has been set in people's minds, or once a certain story has been told about a platform, it's really hard to untell that story. And that's why it's good to get a liquid market at the, at the beginning. It's good to have flexibility about what, use, what users want. It's good to have people set routes, and it's good to do things that don't scale. It's good to move slower early on than move faster. Early on, it's important to grow mass and to create all of these things we've talked about, but, but not to do so so quickly that what you do early on will mess up what you do later. As I thought about the platforms, I realized that I think YouTube is the best platform right now. The YouTube doesn't have to pay uh, what companies like HBO or Netflix or Amazon have to pay for original content. YouTube... Um, only has to host the videos and make connections. The connections they're making, the matching that YouTube is doing is really pretty good. Whenever I finish a YouTube video, there's almost always one suggestion that at least piques my interest. I may not click on it, but it piques my interest. And I've even watched some of the advertisements that are in front of YouTube videos, and I don't think I've ever clicked on a Twitter advertisement. Overall, I thought that Alex made a lot of nice points in his book. If you want to get a pretty wide gist of it, his interview with Patrick O'Shaughnessy on the Invest Like the Best podcast is a really nice summary. And if you want to get into the weeds, the book is a quick read available on the Amazon Kindle. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.